Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the testimony of Rittenhouse Associate Ryan Balsh this week, as well as the assessment I offered at the end of our last episode of Prosecutor Thomas Binger's examination of Balch. Our discussion of Ryan Balch on the witness stand is coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thank you for joining us again. My pleasure. So what was your impression of Ryan Balch as a witness? And what do you think was Prosecutor Binger's strategy in calling him as a witness for the state? Well, I had a couple of different reactions to Ryan Balch's testimony. One, again, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say this on a podcast, but this is becoming increasingly a shit show for the prosecution. And number two, I kept feeling like there are really two Americas because of the gun thing, because guns and people possessing guns, whether it's a semi-automatic rifle or a Glock handgun, has somehow become neutralized in this trial such that Ryan Balch seemed like perfectly credible witness, if a little peculiar. I mean, the motivation of Rittenhouse, Balch, and these other guys to come protect the city of Kenosha is, you know, a kind of bizarre vigilanteism. It's that taking up of arms kind of thing. And it's foreign to a bunch of us, but apparently quite commonplace to others. And, you know, I'm so curious about what the jury is making of all of this, of just the different cultures that are a little bit at war here. But, you know, when I say that it's increasingly become a shit show for the prosecution, what I mean is that every witness Binger calls makes the defense case. And Ryan Balch could not have done a better job of articulating the threat to kill uttered by Rosenbaum and apparently taken seriously by this witness who didn't really, you know, doesn't really have a dog in this fight. So he comes across as fairly neutral and dispassionate, though more on Rittenhouse's team than not, I suppose. But he makes out the reasonable fear of imminent violence at the hands of Rosenbaum. And I think it doesn't matter very much because I don't think either the prosecution or the defense really explained Balch's wrongful characterization of this clear hospital bag and what it contained. I I don't think either one of them made decent use of that. I suppose the defense was just a lucky recipient, but the prosecution called this witness 
and Ryan Balch, you know, began to seem perfectly reasonable that Rittenhouse might have thought that the bag had a Molotov cocktail because Balch established that a bunch of people did have some sort of incendiary device with them. How is it that Binger could have not been prepared better for this witness? In other words, I didn't see any real plan in guiding his examination that matched up with any kind of theory of why Kyle Rittenhouse was guilty. I agree with you. And I was wrestling with this as I was listening to the testimony. What could Binger be thinking? And, you know, I mean this somewhat ironically, but either that he's the most fair-minded, even-handed, justice-seeking prosecutor on earth because he's getting so much out of these witnesses that is helpful to the other side, or he's kind of inept, and I'd like to be kinder about it. I think there was one thing he wanted from this witness, but it was so lost in the sea of other stuff that it didn't contribute to his prosecution theory, which is he wanted Ryan Balch to say he sort of chastised Rittenhouse and said, yo, you know, don't be talking to these other people. Don't be going off on your own. I think he wanted that exchange to give rise to an inference that Rittenhouse was a loose cannon, unlike everybody else on the street, even people who had firearms. But it's a subtle point at best. And it's a kind of double negative, you know, that doesn't really serve a narrative theory. That nobody else was like Rittenhouse seems to be the theory. Nobody else killed anybody. Nobody else, you know, was a kind of immature gun-toting guy. But sorry, go ahead. If he had any chance of proving anything, it was that Kyle Rittenhouse was reckless. And the idea that he was a young and impressionable kid actually made him sound sympathetic. But his taunting the woman who was heckling him with, I love you too, ma'am, as an example of recklessness was pretty mild. And no, it wasn't just it wasn't just mild. It undercut the prosecution's theory. That's not a guy who at the slightest provocation, you know, loses control and acts in a reckless, enraged fashion. That's benign. I love you too, ma'am. It's utterly benign. You know, it's sardonic, but it's benign. Point taken. And so there's a bunch of testimony to go through here, Abby, and at the risk of feeling like a broken record, I'm trying to understand why Binger would go through all of the questions about full metal jacket rounds and hollow point rounds, why he would go through the stuff about the Zeminskis and whether Balch mentioned the Zeminskis on the night in question, why he would go through through all of these tributaries from whatever his main point was, what was he trying to do? I mean, could you figure it out? No, because first of all, that full metal jacket exchange, it went on for so long. I don't know how else to put this, but it began to kind of feel homoerotic to me that these two guys were just enraptured with the lexicon of firearms and ammunition. And it wasn't helpful because the witness who was under examination had the same exact kind of bullets in his gun that Kyle Rittenhouse had in his gun. He just happened to not have them in the Glock. He was carrying two firearms for some reason, but it didn't help him. And it really did sound like Binger was interested 
And then he got embarrassed that he referred to the butt of the gun when he meant something else and he had to assure his witness. No, no, I, I didn't mean that. I'm, I'm really familiar with this stuff. I'm, I'm good at it, too. Let's keep talking about it. I, it was embarrassing. And then he tried to sort of impeach Balch about his being mistaken that he was south of the shootings rather than north. Yeah, mattered not one bit. It fed into the chaos and dangerousness of the evening. And people don't think that way. They don't live that way. Police and prosecutors can be obsessed with northerly direction, southerly direction, you know, the exact number of the location of a place on a block. That's just not how people live. You know, we can say north and we mean south and no jury is going to be persuaded by that. You know, he seemed to want it both ways. He wanted to impeach him as to some things, but he seemed to be liking him as to others. And honest God, I'm stuck on that. I love you too, ma'am. It's perfect for the defense. He even calls her ma'am. That's respectful. And it kind of underscores that he's a little kid, that he's a young person who would call somebody else ma'am or sir. And he's a kind of respectful youngster who would do that. It was really not good. And then Binger ends his direct examination by getting Balch to confirm that he gave the reporters that night a fake name. Like, why is that relevant? What's he doing? I'm not sure. He had the, made the same point about sort of mocking the witness about feeling swarmed by reporters, you know, as if he was under attack. And, you know, here's the thing. I think a jury would think, well, yeah, a bunch of reporters coming at you with cameras or microphones or what have you, you know, would be unpleasant. I don't think he scored anything there either. And the fake name, it's a strange organizational structure, if nothing else. If he means to surgically pull a couple of pieces of information from this witness that might help the prosecution, you know, then you pull those things out first. And if the rest of it hurts you, then you should do that impeachment next. So that the lens through which a jury is regarding the testimony is that this guy has a truth telling problem as to the rest of this. You know, we're willing to say he's right on a couple of things, but you should really regard the rest of his testimony through this biased or less than credible lens. It just didn't work out. I wasn't sure why he was ending on that note. And I think probably people would think nothing much of that guy and that that particular circumstance, not giving his real name. He kind of didn't want to be bothered. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In the next part of our conversation, Abby and I begin to drill down on Prosecutor Binger's general handling of Balch, as well as his strategy for the case overall. I want to return to two possibilities here that I've raised previously. One is that Binger was woefully underprepared for the case, that he was sort of working his way through the evidence on the fly. And then the second is that Binger knew he had a loser of a case. He just figured he'd throw everything up there and hope that something stuck. Do you think that either of those is plausible? Well, 
Both actually resonate for me. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It does feel like he's learning stuff as the trial is going on and is asking questions and getting answers that he wasn't completely prepared to get, which is not what a direct examination, especially by a prosecutor, should consist of. He should know what he's looking at. He should carefully craft an examination that elicits the evidence he needs. And yes, there is a kind of kitchen sink feel to the case because so far the witnesses being are has called all support the defense. And so, you know, is it just that I have these witnesses? I feel that I should call them. I returned to my own impression when I read about this case in the national press, I was stunned. You know, I couldn't believe there wasn't a conviction in this case. Now that I know more and have heard more of the testimony, I can't believe there wasn't a decent plea offer in this case. Decent meaning for the prosecution that they could have gotten a plea on some charge at least if not necessarily the serious, most serious charges that were ultimately brought and tried, he must have known that it was going to be a tough go for him, Binger. Yeah. And lost in so much of this is Anthony Huber. You know, I mean, Gage Grosskreutz had a weapon, but Anthony Huber had a skateboard. Right. And it feels like there's just no way to unpack this where all of it doesn't collapse on the hyper aggressive, menacing nature of Rosenbaum's demeanor that night. Yeah. I mean, the testimony about Rosenbaum has been consistently bad for the prosecution. He's not simply a kind of classic unlikable victim or unlikable complaining witness or unsympathetic. He's beyond that. I think truly you wouldn't need to call Kyle Rittenhouse in the defense case if this case was only about Rosenbaum. I think there's a reasonable doubt as to whether Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. I think he wins as to Rosenbaum right now if we were to stop this case. Huber is the most interesting part of this case and there's too much bleeding in from the other guys And that's to the defense's advantage. And I think Binger is contributing to that. He also, when I talk about the organizational structure of his examinations, he really needs there to be a kind of pause, a setting aside of the Huber incident. So it's not just one big, ongoing, fast, furious, chaotic incident, which is what the defense would like the jury to believe, but rather that each one of those shootings required some deliberation on the part of Kyle Rittenhouse and is a separate incident. Prosecution has to keep those separate. And Huber's the best thing the prosecution has going. That's why when I'm thinking there should have been serious plea negotiations, if I was Binger, I would have been reluctant to let go of the Huber charges. But, you know, maybe give way on the other two guys. And it's not because the value of the life lost of Rosenbaum or Grosskreutz is less than any other human being. It's that there is enough so that the prosecution was going to have a hard time proving its case beyond a reasonable doubt as to those two guys. But Huber with a skateboard after a shooting, after a guy discharges a semi-automatic weapon, many rounds, who uses his skateboard and then gets shot. That's the best thing Binger has going. And we've heard so little about that. Yes. And one can imagine things unfolding differently if Richie McGinnis had been struck by a bullet or some other unarmed individual who got hit by a stray bullet that was aimed at someone else. 
Yes, I agree. But I take your point. It feels like in including Rosenbaum and Grosskreutz in the case that Huber totally gets lost by their actions that may have legitimately triggered Rittenhouse's response. Yeah, I mean, I really don't mean to devalue the humanity of either Rosenbaum or Grosskreutz, but Huber is the most sympathetic of the victims. He's a guy on a skateboard. Now, I understand he has his own complicated past, but he comes closest to somebody being out there engaging in peaceful protest, as opposed to somebody going out there as a provocateur, which it seems that Rosenbaum was, and possibly Grosskreutz too, although again, we don't know enough about Grosskreutz, and Brian Balch's testimony could have been good for Grosskreutz because people are caring firearms, and that's perfectly lawful in Wisconsin. That could have been separated out as well. But the defense is doing a very good job of keeping Rosenbaum front and center. And once there's reasonable fear, then Kyle Rittenhouse becomes a more sympathetic figure. And there's both a legal theory and a compelling narrative about self-defense that, you know, we believe in this country that there's a fundamental right to defend oneself. That's the sort of narrative force of it and the elements of self-defense, reasonable fear of imminent bodily harm. And, you know, I think the prosecution has kind of established that. Did they not know that? You have to wonder that that's what their witnesses were going to say. And weren't they worried that they were tilting the scales in the other direction themselves? As a trial lawyer, you know, there's a motto that's really similar to a motto followed by doctors. First, do no harm. First, do no harm in your own case. You know, you don't want to help the opposition when you're putting on your case. Abby Smith, thank you again for joining us. Look forward to doing it again next week. Thanks, Carrie. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we review the testimony of another of Kyle Rittenhouse's associates on the night of August 25, 2020, Jason Lakowski. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.